you're listening to Real Talk SLP with your host, Felice Clark, the Deviling Speechy. This is a show to help speech pathologists navigate the SLP world with real-life stories to celebrate therapy successes and how to persevere when failure comes knocking on your door. Welcome, welcome to the Real Talk SLP podcast. I'm your host, Felice Clark, the Dabbling Speechy. Hello, hello. So if you're new to this podcast, this is a place where we have real conversations with other speech pathologists or or educators or, or practitioners that are in the field that help support students with communication needs. And we talk about how to serve these students well and hear from people that are in the trenches doing the work. And and so welcome, welcome, welcome. (laughs) I don't know about you guys, but um, I'm counting down the days till spring break. You may be on spring break right now and I'm a little jealous, um, but I can, I'm going to wait it out. I'm going to wait it out. And, uh, and it's going to be so nice when spring break hits. So I hope that if you are on spring break or you are going to be starting spring break, that you really, really put that work bag away and try to plan some stuff that just gets you outside in nature or somewhere, even if you're not going to go far, you know, plan a picnic lunch outside or, you know, I don't know, do something. I know sometimes a lot of times for spring break, we don't really go anywhere in terms of like, we don't plan these big vacations where we're going like, you know, to a new country. And especially with the pandemic, I know it's harder to travel anyway, but we tend to just do staycations. I definitely by spring, I'm like, okay, I need to go somewhere and I need to have a little like getaway. Um, And because I live in California, there are lots of cool spots that are not too far away that help me to just get away, relax, enjoy the fam and refresh. So I hope you are able to do that. All right, SLP. So today we're going to be talking with Rose Griffin from ABA Speech, and she's going to be sharing some really practical tips and and information about how to write early learning goals for your students with a diagnosis of autism. I don't know about you guys, but a lot of times when I'm doing assessments, in particular for with students with a diagnosis of autism, it's really easy for me to go, okay, I can point out where maybe they're struggling, where their areas of needs are, or maybe I gave them all the standardized tests because I have, you know, my district saying you have to do standardized measures and then you're going, okay. So they really struggled with those standardized measures, but now where do I start? What goals do I write? How do I write goals that are also going to, you know, help with carryover and be, you know, get, get the most progress for the year. And I think this is an area where a lot of us struggle. I did a professional goal for three years of just goal writing and baseline and really trying to understand, you know, what I'm doing behind those goals. So I did a professional goal for three years because guess what, guys? I was building on those skills every year. It wasn't like I just (laughs) miraculously got better at it. I had to intentionally practice it. And it is a hard skill. And it's one of those things that with even with some of our, you know, years and years of practicing this, we still have to go to our SLP colleagues and be like, okay, look, I need some help. Here's the, here's the child's 
you know, strengths and here's some areas of weakness. How, how would you perceive? This is what I'm thinking. And so if you can relate to this, you're really going to like this interview because Rose gives very practical information that's, that's going to help give you some guidance in this area. So before we head to that interview, I want to let you guys know about a new freebie that you can grab to help make spring, April, and May a little bit brighter. Um, I have a free Google Slides with all the best spring videos organized for you to use in therapy. So there are video, I scoured YouTube and found all the, the best spring theme videos for songs, book read alouds, movement breaks, and social pragmatic videos that you can use in therapy. And they're all organized so that when you're doing teletherapy or when you're doing therapy on your computer, you don't have to scour the internet or scramble to find the videos that you need. And I know what that feels like. It's stressful and it's just like, why did I... (laughs) you know, it's not fun. So I wanted to make that a little bit easier so that you can have everything ready to go and just kind of, you know, feel a little bit more confident that your April and May may be filled with meetings and IEPs and paperwork, but you're going to have those videos ready to go in a jam so that you can quickly pull up and do effective therapy. So these will be in the show notes. Um, The link will be in the show notes. So go grab those. All right, so let's go chat with Rose and all about early language goals and writing those for the IEP. Hey, Rose, welcome to the podcast. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, I don't know if you guys know this, but Rose and I have done some collaboration. Her website is abaspeech.org, and she sells and has courses on her website, and I have done a course with her for push-in therapy. So we we have collaborated before, and I thought it'd be fun to have her on the podcast to talk about those students who are younger, earlier learners that also have autism and where to start after maybe you've done the assessment or you're writing new goals for the IEP. And she specializes in this area, so I thought I'd have her come on. I'm excited to chat all about that. And yes, your course is a really wonderful course. My company, ABA Speech, is an ASHA-approved CE provider. We take a lot of pride in that. There are a lot of rules and requirements. And I think the application to do that was like 250 pages. So that was one of my summers a couple summers ago. Um, But I'm so excited. You have a course on my site all about push-in therapy, and that's going to be open again in the summer. So we're super excited to be able to offer that. And it's just such a dynamic course. Yes, I was excited to collaborate with you on that. And I love that you have a lot of mini courses or just quick little courses on different topics that you can get for a really affordable price. So if there's SLPs out there that are looking for courses where they can get some CEUs and listen to it, you know, on their lunch break, that's a good place to go. Let me just say, I know that I feel a little bit overwhelmed sometimes when I get those younger students who have autism. The team has identified a lot of areas of need, and it's just really hard to know, well, where do we spend all of our time? What goals do we write? Because I don't know about you, Rose, but I want to be really efficient with the goals I choose so that I see progress over time. I mean, is that something that is overwhelming for, for you, or do you see that as a struggle? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's a major struggle. And I think it really starts with the assessment piece. Like, what assessment are we going to use for students who are early learners? And it really doesn't even have to be somebody who's young chronologically as in their age, but anybody who's working in an area where potentially they're nonverbal or they're limited verbally, they don't have any way to communicate with the world. So unfortunately, we sometimes meet students who are advanced in age and they still are really struggling to find their voice. So if you're listening and you're working with younger students and you're like, yes, I have a student just like that, Rose, or you're working with older students and you feel like that resonates with you, that's really what I want to talk about. Where do we get started? Because it can just be hard to know. Like, you said, Felice, there can be so many different things that feel like we need to work on them and we want to be efficient. I am also, I'm a school-based therapist three days a week and two days a week I have my own private practice, ABA speech, but it's hard to know how do we streamline our services? How do we work in collaboration with the team? Because oftentimes these students do have bigger teams. There might be a school therapist, an outside therapist, potentially there's a BCBA involved, there's OT, parent advocates, you know, parents are involved. So it's a lot of different people and making sure we all have ongoing communication and we have that IEP as a framework for the scope and sequence of what we're going to work on is very, very pivotal for our students. Totally. And so when you say, you know, we're going to talk about early learning with autism, do you mind just breaking that down a little bit more where you're coming from with that term? So if anyone's new to hearing that, they can uh, understand. Absolutely. So anybody would be an early learner that is not spontaneously communicating on their own. So students who were really struggling, students who you may be working with and you may be thinking, I'm not sure even what assessment to use for this student because I feel like the student potentially is not going to get a standardized store on an assessment that we use from the speech therapy field. So then we're like, okay, well, what do we do now? You know, um, I don't know if you've ever used the communication matrix. That's an online tool that I think is free, or maybe now there's a, a charge, but it's pretty affordable. There's also the functional communication profile, which is really open-ended. It allows us to look and analyze a lot of different receptive, expressive, social language skills. Um, and then I talk a lot about a test called the VB map, which is more from the BCBA side of my um, life. But even if you're working with consultants or if you're getting any type of support in your classroom, that might be a tool. Um, or the ABLES are, and really what those assessments do is they really just kind of break down the different skill sets. So anybody that's an early learner might be working on things like requesting, you know, imitation, either verbal imitation or gross motor imitation, matching, uh, group skills is a huge one. And I know, you know, when this is going to air, some districts are probably still completely virtual. But thinking about next year, um, that's one thing I'm definitely working on for my business is to be able to share um we have a really nice uh, freebie called Autism IEP Goal Bank, which I'll make sure you have for the show notes, but it's just kind of some goal setting for early learners. But I'm putting together um, one that will target more social skill, group interaction, because it's going to be so hard for us as speech therapists and so hard for students who are used to this computer-based learning. I'm sure some students are going to just be running towards the school and super excited to connect with everybody. And other students are really going to have a hard time making that transition. Yeah, it's going to, it's like they've, they've gotten used to a whole different setup 
and our, you know, our, a lot of our kids struggle with transitioning. So it'll, it'll be interesting. <laughs> so basically an early learner, and I have used the communication matrix. Um, I know about the functional communication profile. I don't think I've used it because I either use the communication matrix. It's just, you know, it's like whatever you have in your district. Right. Um, but yes, so basically an early learner is someone who is still establishing some of those functions of communication and trying to get to that verbal place. They may have some functions of communication, but they may be just gesturally communicating. Right. Or you're just kind of still struggling as a whole team of, well, how is this student going to communicate? You know, like I had a student that um, I think my first time I went to ASHA, it was actually in, in LA. That was my first ASHA experience. I did a poster presentation all about a student who I met uh, when he entered sixth grade and he would have been considered an early learner and the fact that he didn't have a way to really communicate that was spontaneous. Uh, We did a lot of assessment together. We had a lot of shared goals. I did a lot of training with pair pros about how to run his communication programming. um, And he was able to start spontaneously communicating. But what was interesting about that student is that when I first met him, I thought, oh, you know what? He wasn't talking at all. It wasn't really even verbalizing. I thought, oh, this student is going to be really a great candidate for an AAC device. I'm really not quite sure why I thought that, but the student was not able to point. He didn't have a point. So I worked in collaboration with the OT and now the student can point, which is cool for leisure and all kinds of things. And then we started working on sign language and we trained the team. And then we started working on verbal imitation. It was like all part of these skills that we worked on together that helped this student really find their voice. But we really, as a team, were kind of analyzing, how is the student going to communicate? I think it's going to be AAC. Oh, wait, that's not going to work. I think it's signed, but now he's verbalizing. And so the student really now is a verbal communicator. And that's been really cool to see that collaboration and that growth when we work on these early learner skills together and have that ongoing communication with everybody that's on the team. Very, very cool. So it sounds like even after you do an initial assessment, just even gathering that informal profile with some of those tools you mentioned, and I'll link those in the show notes too, just in case people, you know, you said them too fast and they can go back and look at them. Because I think you said the V... I don't know. You said it's called the VB map. Yeah. So it stands for verbal behavior milestones, assessment and placement program. And it's a tool that's widely used by people that are in the behavioral field. So even if you're a speech therapist, who's collaborating with a team and the student is getting outside services, that information is really, really valuable on the VB map report. So, you know, I, I, as a school speech therapist, I work with students who are getting outside consultation. I'm not the BCBA on the case. And I really love all that kind of reports that come in or if a student's got an IE, you know, an individualized um, eval from another provider and they've done, you know, six different standardized tests. I really embrace that information um, because I know as a school-based therapist, it's really, really hard to get that kind of information and to have that much time to be able to spend on assessment. And so even if those things are kind of coming across your desk, even just kind of being familiar with the term and that it is something that's pretty popular can really give us great information about communication. And some of the things that I love that that looks at that we would kind of capture in an observation would be, you know, how is the student in a group setting? Like I know when I was an autism consultant down in Austin, Texas for three years, 
I always would get called into schools because morning circle or story time, it was hard for students to sit there. So, you know, why is that? We would analyze the environment. What's taking place? Does the student like that story? Do they understand to do the motions? There's so many different things that happen during that morning circle time. And so those types of things are kind of harder for us to capture and really not able to on some of the standardized tests that we use. But that's really where some of our students are struggling in those type of experiences, especially for students in preschool and things like that. Okay. So what I'm gathering is that when we do those initial assessments, of course, we're going to have to try to do those standardized assessments because we, you know, a lot of school-based SLPs especially have to meet criteria, but we all know that sometimes when you do those, you're kind of going, well, I know they are struggling with receptive language and expressive language, and I was only doing this as a formality, but now I have no idea what they really need. And so using some of those informal activities, I'd say even doing classroom observations are very important. Number one, for a legally defensible uh, assessment, but it also can, like you said, give you just a really good profile of what is going on when they're in a naturalistic setting. So that, it just seems like before you can even start talking about goals that you want to use for the student, you have to have a really good collaborative picture about the kid and collaborating with the OT, the BCBA, the psychologist. Yes, you agree? absolutely. I think it's so important to be able to talk to all of those people on the team and really the most important person too on the team, you know, the parents, obviously the, the student, if you're able to get information from the student, that's very, very important. But I always make sure that I reach out to parents too. And um, something that I do that's kind of I don't tell everybody because it's a lot of hard work is that at the beginning of the school year in my school-based job, I actually send a very short email to every single student on my IEP, on my caseload and just say, hey, my name is Rose. I'm going to be your child speech therapist. I work in a very small district, so a lot of these families already know me, but I always say, hey, if you have any questions or concerns or just want to say hi, please reply to this email. And I think it's just that first touch point in the beginning of the year that's important because then when it's IEP time and maybe you haven't talked to the parent, maybe everything's been fine. I always like to really check in with them. Now, you may not have to yourself. You know, the teacher, if you're not the case manager, the teacher may have already done that. Maybe they have a questionnaire. Maybe they know that they're concerned about communication. And oftentimes, Felice, these students, the parents are very concerned about communication. So I always try to really be in the loop and try to have some type of ongoing communication with parents because I don't know if you've ever been in an IEP meeting when you feel like you have all the goals set. I actually just had this happen to me two weeks ago. I completely wrote an IEP for a student, felt good about the IEP, had talked to the private therapist. At three in the morning, when I went into work the next day, I checked my email. When I got into work and at three in the morning, somebody had emailed me completely different goals that I needed to revise for the student. But that was really stressful as a school-based IEP because I had students to see all day, right? But I wanted to make sure that it was an IEP that the team felt good about. And so I just made it happen. Um, But it was very, very stressful. So even if you have those supports in place, you know, you may come up with a situation like that. Now, that doesn't always happen to me. That was probably the only time in 20 years something crazy like that's happened. But we just try to have that ongoing communication to let parents know, like, I'm hearing you. I want to know what your concerns are prior to drafting the goals. I think that's really important for parents. 
Yeah. And I like that idea. You know, that's a good reminder that parent, you know, we do consult everyone and then sometimes forget about the parent because they're at work or at home and they're not right there when, when you're talking with the rest of the team before the meeting. Um, I definitely do try to call and connect with the parent before the IEP, but I like the idea of, you know, setting that foundation at the start of the year and it goes a long way even though we, it is a lot of kids for some of you, for right. you some yeah. people have very large caseloads. Right. And so one workaround that I have found for that is I think Natalie, I got it from Natalie Snyder. She has an editable like word doc where you can introduce yourself. You can even put your picture on there. So I did use that a couple of years ago. I started using it because I had, I went to two days a week and I'm kind of, you know, just supporting another SLP's caseload. I have certain classrooms. They're going to think one speed, you know, they're like, who's Mrs. Clark? I'm not the main therapist. So I put my picture on there, my name, when I was going to be on campus, how they could email me. And I gave it to the teacher to put in their backpacks. And I think I even put the child's uh, speech time. And then I do try to call the parents if I can, because it does make a difference. But I, I'm like, okay, at least I have the newsletter. Right. That's good. Yes. Going out. No, that's and then great. I all, <laughs> yeah. And, and I started doing that a few years ago when I definitely didn't feel like I, you know, I could be very confusing because I think we even had a slip on campus too. So oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> and you're like, who's this? And when do they get, you know, like you feel like you have your schedule and you know, when you see the kids, but I try to definitely advocate for like, this is what we're doing. And, um, and I think that that too, like that start of the year, kind of doing that as a touch point, like it depends on your district, but I work in a district where a lot of kids get a lot of outside therapy. That's just kind of the nature of the district that I work in. So, and then it lends itself that to a nice conversation that I try to have with the private therapist, the outside consultant, you know, like, especially at the beginning of the year, so we can kind of get on the main, the same page about how we're going to communicate about different things. And so every district is going to be different, but that, that is a really good idea too, just so parents feel that, you know, they have that, that support that they need during IEPs are stressful. I mean, I think they're very, very stressful um, writing them. And, you know, I went to an ethics talk at ASHA schools a couple of years ago and, and the lady said, you know, when people don't are out of compliance with the IEP, you know, it's like the IEP is what we said we were going to do. And I always try to remind myself of that because I feel like as a school-based therapist, there's a lot of barriers to providing therapy, right? We, there's an IEP meeting that we have to attend for another student. Well, then we have to reschedule therapy or what does that look like? Or maybe we write that into our minutes that I'm going to see the student three times monthly instead of four or, you know, there's all those different things. And I think too, like today I had a crazy day where I had two IEPs and I had to go to a building. I had to walk there twice today. And I mean, there's just so many different barriers that I think that speech therapists have to really hone this skill of of pivoting, like, okay, now I'm seeing a student. Now I'm talking to a parent. Now I'm talking to a teacher. There's the principal. I have to do a teletherapy session. You know what I mean? Like we really mm -hmm. have gotten really um, good at that. I feel like I have um, strengthened that muscle of being flexible this school year um, <laughs> just because I have been going in, but I've also been doing teletherapy. But then if kids are on quarantine or now we're getting our COVID shots, you know, like there's a lot of different things where we could say like, well, I just can't see so-and-so. I just can't do this, you know, but I always like bring it back to the IEP and try to reframe my thinking and say like, okay, this is what we said we were going to do. Like, let's just do it. Let's get these sessions in and make them great for the kids. Totally. Cause that is something to consider. We are talking about IEPs and how to develop those for our early learners and 
Those are things we have to, uh, you know, consider. So I would say we have, let's just say we have everything set up for areas of need. The team's collaborated. We have a good picture. What is it a practical and systemic approach, systematic approach to like just picking goals? Like how do you go through that or process or what it, do you have a framework or how, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think after we have the assessment and we've talked with teachers and we could see if maybe there's potentially some shared goals that we could have together. I don't know if you've ever got an IEP or had a kid transition from maybe a non-public placement and maybe there's, you know, seven communication goals and each one has three objectives underneath and you're like, what am I even doing with this document? I mean, I've totally been there. I've probably totally been the person on the other end writing that IEP, but we really have to have a narrow focus. So some of the things I think to myself are, you know, why is this goal important for the student? Why is this something, is this a prerequisite skill that the student needs? Is this something that's going to help them learn other skills? Is this going to help them have a more robust way to communicate with the world? We have to be able to answer those questions. And those questions, when I was first starting out, would make me very nervous. I remember I worked at a non-public program for three years here in the Cleveland area, and I would have I was 23 and I have special education directors asking me, well, why are you working on that program or how does that look? And I was just like dying inside. I mean, it's it's very nerve wracking, right? But we want to feel really comfortable understanding why is this important for the student? And if we can't explain that, we need to really get support and clarity on why we're setting these goals because we're going to be spending so much time working on them. We kind of sometimes have to narrow things down and have a narrow focus so the student gets more opportunities to practice these skills. So that's definitely the first thing. Um, and then I just think about writing SMART goals, like, you know, thinking about what behavior are we targeting? I know that, you know, if some people looked at my goals, they might say like, oh, I can't believe someone wrote this goal. Or if, you know, if I got somebody else's goals, we've all been guilty of that. Like, what does this even mean? You know, like when we get a transfer IEP, like we all do that as professionals um, because we're not going to do things the same way, which is fine. But we have to just look at goals and say, you know, what exact behavior are we ta targeting? Are we targeting labeling? So we're going to include that in the goal. Are we targeting verbal imitation? We're going to put that right in there. I try to be very, very specific so that if a student did transfer, and we do have students that transfer out of district, and I'm sure most of your listeners do, that this, the speech therapist would have an idea of what we were doing in the different speech therapy sessions that we were holding. So I think those are some of the most important things. Um, and then asking yourself, is this appropriate for our client? You know, that those are the things too. You know, if you have an older student who maybe is an early learner, how do we make that, uh, how do we make a matching picture to picture or same picture to same picture functional for a student who's in middle school, who we're getting ready for competitive employment? How can we morph that into something that would be more competitive employment versus if we're working with a student who's in preschool and we're matching picture to picture, that could be really fun and a lot easier, right? Because there's a lot of materials out there for younger students and that's that particular skill lends itself to um, being worked on with younger students with a variety of different things. So sometimes we have to really investigate those different ideas and we have to think about what's developmentally appropriate. Like I know you have three kids as well. I have three kids too. So I always mm -hmm. try to just analyze my own students, my own kids at home, and what are they talking about with their friends, right? I've never, especially social skills, and that's like such a hot topic now, right? I just try to work on things that seem really natural. Like what do my 
my kids say when they're playing with their friends or what games do they like to play? I've never, ever heard my kids say, my turn, your turn, you know, like trying to really think naturalistically, how does this look like when kids play a game or how does this look when my son's at preschool, you know, during circle time and or during center's time and trying to really mirror those types of, of things for our students to work on. And sometimes, I mean, we're not always going to agree with everybody on the team. I think that's something that's important to say too, as speech therapists, we really have to advocate and say like, this is why this is important for the student. This is the vision that I have, and this is how it's going to help them increase their overall independence. So those are some things that are a good kind of framework and kind of starting with IEP development and things like that. Totally. And I would say I, I, I agree with the, uh, let's just stop the seven communication goals on the IEPs with the, with the uh, goal stuffing of another three of sometimes I'll get goals. And I, and I'm not saying I've never been guilty of this. This is something that I think I've had a professional goal for at least three years because it's something that it just takes a while to get better at. But putting three different things on there or saying they will name synonyms and antonyms out of 30 words, you're going, well, wait a minute, do I have that much time? <laughs> do I have 30 words? Right. That's a lot. And, and I have to do antonyms and synonyms, you know, like, so that's an example of just, I know we want to pack it all in. And you brought up another point too, of just goal sharing. And I have gone to IEPs where I have, you know, I had checked in with the teacher, but then, you know, you hadn't checked in one more time. And then we look at some of the goals that we've made and I'm like, oh, these are, I don't want to say they're the same goals, but one of them is an ELA goal and it's about reading comprehension. And I have a listening comprehension goal or something along that, that line that I could be with that goal with the teacher and we right. can break up how we're doing it. Or you have a kid who has four or five areas of need for speech and language, but you're going, I don't want to write five goals, but maybe there are components of those goals, like a conversational goal or turn-taking that really shouldn't just be all on your plate. It should be a team approach because you're not going to be able to to give those opportunities that the general ed or special ed classroom could provide when you're not there. So that is another, I think, thing to really consider too, when you're looking at goals. Absolutely. I think that's really important. And sometimes I think for speech therapists, even if you're working with, you know, other professions, you might think to yourself, well, this goal is the same. Like sometimes if you're allowed, and I know every place is different, potentially if you're in a clinic and you're taking insurance and there's different rules. Um, but if you can have a shared goal, like you said, of reading comprehension, I think that's really great because maybe the classroom environment is set up, like maybe they're doing news to you or they're doing something that's a story time, Raz kids, and they're working on it that way. And then maybe when you see the student, maybe you use different materials, which is great because you're working on planning for that generalization, right? I always say this, what happens in the therapy room shouldn't stay in the therapy room. And a lot of the kids I see, because I'm middle school, high school, I don't even see anybody really except for reception of one or two kids in my therapy office, right? I try to say communication really happens out in the larger school environment. Like I'm kind of just there to be a facilitator, a coach to help support 
um, what's happening in the curriculum. And I think that it can be hard for speech therapists to understand that, especially if you're working in a district or with a teacher that doesn't have a really set schedule, that doesn't really have that vision. Um, and that's really hard, you know, for some teachers to know how to work on communication just embedded throughout the day. That's definitely a skill set that is something that people get better at over time, definitely. So I like that idea of just narrowing down the goals. Don't kill yourself on having a ton. We'd have a no more narrow focus. And what I say is that so the students get more opportunities to practice. And I always say my biggest part of my job is not the actual therapy. It's actually me building rapport with other people on the team so that I can help train, support, coach them to also work on communication across the student's day. Because what happens in speech therapy, if that's just an isolated event and we're just like kind of operating this little silo, um, that's really not going to help anybody, that type of service delivery. So I think that's a really great point. Some other things that I try to think about are how is the goal specific? And so sometimes with students who are early learners, it can be really, really hard for to show and demonstrate progress. Like you, your example, you know, with the 30 synonyms or the 30 antonyms. Like today, I just had an IEP and we talked about answering personal safety questions. So that might be things like, what's your name? What's your mom's name? What's your dad's name? What's your address? Those are really, really important things for students with autism to understand. And so the way that we wrote the goal is the beginning goal talks about increasing expressive language, and then we just benchmark the objectives. So the first um, objective is that they will be able to answer two questions. Objective two is they'll be able to answer a total of four. Objective three is they'll be able to answer a total of six. So we are going to be able to answer six questions over the year, which may not seem like a lot, but when we have, you know, I don't know what your schools are like, but we have a resource officer in our school. We can like generalize to a police officer, a community helper, the principal. And if a student can be able to answer those six questions across different individuals, across different environments, that's really powerful because you help that kid learn a skill that's a lifelong skill, no matter if you're working with preschoolers or you're working with students who are older. So I oftentimes like to make my goals really specific, like something like we're going to work on increasing expressive language by working on labeling um, pictures with 90% accuracy over two consecutive sessions. It's very specific. And for some students, just based on parent preference, I might put in there a total. Like if I've had this student for a long time and I know how many labels they may acquire in a year, if it's 12, I might put in there 12. Because then when I go to take my data, I know that I'm working on specific labels and we keep adding. And then when I go to report progress, I can say like, wow, we've mastered six labels and here's exactly what they are. And that gives you a stepping stone because I know sometimes as a therapist, it can feel really overwhelming when you know that you've made progress in your sessions because maybe the kid's excited to see you, they're working with you, they're engaged. But sometimes on paper, that can be hard to convey that. So being really specific in your goal setting can help with that. So when you say being specific, like being specific with the number of targets or being specific with the types, because I've come into goals where I will get, we'll name 30 nouns and I'm going, oh my, <laughs> like virtually I'm having a panic attack because right. that, that goal in person would be really hard. Because yes. I have a lot of early learners that are not talking a lot over the screen. That doesn't mean they're not taking in the information, but it's- right. 
it's harder. So do you mean specific numbers or just being really specific? Like if it's answering WH questions, it's for answering personal WH questions. Yeah. More like I, sometimes I do put a number in there. Sometimes I leave it more open. It depends, but I always put I always really, and I've been doing this 20 years now, so I'm calling myself seasoned, but I really kind of analyze like, okay, what can we really get done? What is a reasonable target? And we obviously tell parents, we're not going to stop. If it says 12, we're not going to stop at 12 if the student is continuing to acquire new vocabulary. But it's more important to have a really strong grasp on 12 words where they can use them with different people. We can plan for generalization. They can use them in the classroom versus 30 where we're just trying to get to that number. So it's whatever works for your team, but I think it allows us when we're specific like that, it allows us to know exactly what we're going to do in therapy because we say, oh, okay, we're working on labeling. This is what we're working on. Once the student reaches mastery, the 90% over two consecutive sessions, then we're going to add another label you know, and we kind of go on and on like that. So the student really has an in-depth knowledge of those different skills that we're teaching. Totally. And then I would say, and maybe you could piggyback off this, but I have noticed that when I really take the extra time of gathering a baseline and really kind of backward chaining what I'm thinking I want to do in therapy and then trying it on them and taking data with the least amount of prompts to then, okay, where are they at with 60 or 80% with more restrictive prompting so that I can, if I do less prompting, I know that I'm not going to always put 80% on the goal because that's not always achievable. Or I'm going to get the baseline so that I know, okay, naming verbs in a picture is pretty open-ended for this child. And we really need to narrow it down to five or 10 verbs and taking data on those five or 10 verbs. And then of course, doing other verbs in therapy, but knowing that my data is going to be based on those five or 10 verbs. I don't know if you want to speak to that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So I would say absolutely more systematic, just like you're saying. And you can, you can have, you know, every student is going to be different. You might be working with some students who are really complex learners and they really have complex needs. And you might say, you know what, we're going to work on this one label until it's mastered or met criterion, however you want to say it. Because actually, I hate to use the term mastered because I just feel for like anybody, is it ever really mastered? Like even things I've learned, right? Like, I don't know. There's certain things from high school I probably mastered, but I have no clue how to do them today because we don't maintain them. So I think whatever works for you and you really captured something that's so important. So let's say that we are working with a student and let's say they're working on identifying present progressive uh, action words. And so that's a pretty standard speech goal. And so, you know, you're working with flashcards, you're doing it within literacy-based activities, you're kind of just doing all different things, teaching loosely, you know, natural environment, all those different things. Making sure that we take data on that same set, maybe it's five for your student, or maybe it's three, taking data each time on those same ones so that we can say like, yes, we have mastered that, or we met criterion on this date. Um, And I don't know, you know, I've actually been in situations as a school-based therapist where my my data has been, and not just my data, but the entire team's data has been subpoenaed by lawyers. And so they were looking really intently at, I know, uh, really intently at baseline. Like, well, when was this baseline? What day was it baseline? What was the percentage of baseline? How many sessions did it take for the student to acquire or master this? 
So you might be listening and say like, oh, that would never happen in my district. Or you might be listening and saying like, oh yeah, that's just commonplace. Like I come from a place where I'm, I actually love a virtual IEP meeting because, you know, it's not 20 people sitting around a table in a cramped space with advocates and lawyers and it's contentious and sped directors. Um, but that's really the world that I kind of have lived in for the past 20 years. So I really, that idea of taking a baseline and saying like, okay, yeah, this is exactly how the student's doing now and putting that in the profile. And then just like you said, like as a young therapist, I didn't do that. I didn't have that much forethought. I wasn't thinking like, how am I going to target this in therapy? And what is this data collection going to look like? Because I know I've been in meetings before and I think to myself like a long time ago thinking like, gosh, that sounds like a great goal, but I don't really know how we're going to capture data. And I hope nobody asked me that question because we really have to be serious about it. So I love that idea of kind of envisioning like, okay, where's the student at now for baseline? How can we include that? What is therapy actually going to look like? And how am I going to take data on that? Because if we haven't thought about all those things through, and believe me, if you're listening as you're a student and it's overwhelming or you're a newer speech therapist, you know, you get better at these things over time. But I think we've all written those goals. And then month two working on it, you're like, what was I thinking when I wrote this goal? This is not appropriate. Or, you know, I'm going to drive myself crazy. I'm never writing that goal again. Like one year I had yes, no on almost all the kids' IEPs. I don't know what I was thinking. Yes, no is actually a really high level language skill. Like if I held something up and I said, is this an apple? but it wasn't. And they'd have to say, no, it's a banana. I mean, that's just like a very high level language skill. And then now I really analyze it and say like, is that really functional? Is anybody ever going to hold something up and say, is this that? I mean, they're really not unless it's super contrived, right? Could you reason that that could be functional for vocabulary building and listening and, you know, all those things? Sure. But I always just try to think of how is this functional for the student and, uh, you know, what's it going to look like in therapy? Yeah. Well, yeah. And so, I remember just recently I was collaborating with a parent and vir- virtually it's, it's so much not easier, but it's been really nice because the parents usually on. And so we collaborated through like, okay, where is your, your child with answering yes, no questions at home or, you know, and, and at, what are some things that you really would like them to start telling you at home? Well, they wanted them to say if they want something with yes or no. So, you know, we wrote the goal in a different way and we took data. Uh, I took data a few different ways, but yeah, it's like, do you want an apple? Right. Are you mad? You know, those are when they <laughs> say yes, no questions. And so we had to kind of get a baseline like, okay, where is this child with answering yes, no questions? And I think for yes, she just would grab the item. So she wasn't really answering yes, no, but no, she could say no. So it kind of gave us a little bit of a like where she was at. And it gave me a starting point. Like, is this even a good goal to write? Or do we need to go to a skill that would then lead to that one? You know, analyzing that piece of it. So anyway, I can see where you're coming from with that. Like we write these goals that sometimes are so lofty and we just know like, oh, it's an area of need. Right. And, um, and I think that might be a question. I don't know if this is putting you on the spot. Like we have these kids where do we start so that we're functionally targeting goals that aren't too high and that aren't too, I don't want to say low, but that are 
they're already going to master like where do we start with the hierarchy of language you know and yeah yeah areas no I, I think some of these learning readiness skills like following one-step directions you know matching picture to picture gross motor imitation which can be really fun and we do that inherently for younger kids um, verbal imitation I think that any student can use their verbal speech. I don't think it's ever too late for a student, even if that's not going to be their main form of communication, but verbal imitation is really, really important. And um, just engagement, engagement of task. You know, when a student is really engaged with you, kind of that joint attention, literacy-based activities, I think those types of skills, sometimes we call them learning readiness skills. It just helps build a foundation for working on more complex skills. So I think those are really kind of where we start. And then do you use, do you collaborate with the teacher to make those shared goals or do you have those as independent speech goals? We really usually have those as shared goals. So the teacher and the pair pro would potentially be working on it during the school day. And then when I see the student, I take that on it that particular day and then we share it. So it's all really cohesive and we're doing it. It doesn't have to be the same exact way, but we're all kind of working towards that common goal. Right. And so for some people that would like to hear some goal examples, because I know that's like a common question, like yeah. I need goals, I need goal examples. Do you have any handy? If not, we can. Yeah. Yeah. No, I definitely, I'll, in the show notes, I'll should give you the Autism IEP Goal Bank. It's been downloaded by 6,000 professionals. So people really, really love that. And what's funny is I just whipped it together last year when I had a cancellation, but I always just put something in like, you know, the student will increase their overall expressive language skills by labeling preferred items or preferred pictures. And then sometimes I put, might put in parentheses a total of 12 or a total of 10 with 90% accuracy over two consecutive sessions. I always put a percentage. I really never use 90%. That's just kind of my thing because I feel like if I'm going to do it out of five trials that I know that the student is, you know, maybe they get the first one wrong, then they get the next four correct. That's always going to be 80%. So I always try to do it out of 90% or sometimes I say without prompts. And then I always put over so many consecutive sessions. And it goes back to the idea of not saying it's mastered, but that it's reached criterion is what I say, or it's reached mastery. And that's kind of the verbiage that I like to use. So yeah, that goal bank that I have will have more examples like that. And sometimes people get that goal bank and they love it. I actually get 10 comments a day on my blog about it. And then sometimes people look at it and say like, this is it. And I want to be like, yeah, this is it because it's, it's focused, you know, so it's really a focused thing. It doesn't have a hundred goals. It's really specific for these students who are really struggling to find their voice. And so then if you have those really specific goals and you have Rose's outline of areas, you can then backward chain that to get some baseline data using that goal. So you already have the goal areas. Does it Mm -hmm. go by different areas? Yeah. Yeah. So that could be a a great tool to then get a good, strong baseline to, you know, get an idea where a student's at. Or you can, you know, I don't know if you've ever been in a place where you're trying to figure out where the student is at and you just went, you know what, this is really going to be too hard. You got baseline. So then you 
do you then take more baseline data or do you just adjust the goal with more prompting or a different? I usually just completely adjust the goal. Yeah. I mean, I try to do most things that would be without prompting. I realize that there are some students that are just very impaired and they may always need some type of prompting. But if you feel like you're going to be including prompting in a goal, unless it's like something like a group goal, because I feel like there's so much going on in a group that a student may need redirection no matter what type of student it is, um, that I always try to analyze the goal because I want to make sure that it's independent, that our kids are really, we're trying to foster independence. We want them to have a robust way to communicate with the world. And I always say I'm trying to help everybody become an independent communicator and um, work myself out of a job. That's what I say. (laughs) That's a good idea. Well, this has been super, super helpful with just where to start and how to start thinking about goals for some of our early learners. So thanks, Rose, for that. Um, Before you let everyone know where where to find you and what you're up to, if, if I would love it if you could share. I always ask my guests to share a song that inspires them as an SLP or just something that reminds them of what it's like to be a speech pathologist. So if you have a song. Yeah. I mean, I love the song Here Comes the Sun by the Beatles. I had actually never heard of that song until I started as a speech therapist when I was about 23 and I was working with students with really intense behavioral challenges. And I would play that song a lot because it was really kind of therapeutic for the kids and they loved it. But I also find that found that song and still find it to be very, very calming. And I actually just saw old Navy has a sweatshirt. I was, I was laughing with one of my coworkers today. Uh, She had screenshotted one of the old Navy ads because they're now selling a shirt that says, here comes the sun. And I thought, Oh yeah, I'm getting that. (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome well and here comes the sun just reminds me that like good times are coming exactly there are kids our early learners sometimes you'll be going months and months where you're you're thinking this isn't changing and then one day you wake up and they just shoot up and and go way above their goals yes it's exciting Um, But I know you have a webinar, a free webinar coming up. So why don't you let everyone know more about that? Yeah. We'll wrap things up. Great. Yes. I have a free live webinar all about helping students with autism engage and communicate. And it's taking place on three different days, April 6th, 7th, and 13th. And to register, go to abaspeech.org slash five dash strategies. Awesome. Awesome. Um, that is really awesome. So if they just go to your website, it'll be up. And, yes. Okay. Perfect. And then they will, once they put in their information, they'll get an email with all the, with mm-hmm. the times and everything. Yes. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah. So if you have kids on your caseload that have autism and you're wondering how you can engage them, I definitely recommend checking out Rose's free webinar. Um, she also has a lot of other good resources on her website. So Follow her at ABA Speech on Instagram. She does a lot of TikTok. <laughs> I do. <laughs> Still I need you I to could... download that app. I mean, come on. I'm always DMing her like, um, hello, did you see that reel? Like, let's do this thing. Whenever you're ready, Felice, I'm over on TikTok waiting for you. I know. I know. There's a, there's a few of you that I'm like. Oh, they're drifting are... over. People are drifting yeah. over. Um, the other place, if you guys, I just started a podcast in January that's all about autism and communication, and it's called the Autism Outreach Podcast. So we have parents on, speech therapists, 
all different types of professionals and we all, and individuals with autism, and we talk all about autism and communication. So that's been a really great way to connect with people too. Awesome. So I will put that in the show notes too, if you want to check out her podcast, but um, it was great chatting with you and good luck on your webinar (laughs) and may you make it to the end of the school year. (laughs) Yes. Thank you. Good to see you. Almost there, right? Almost there. We got it. All right. All right, everyone, just remember to be the SLP that every kid wants to see and stay inspired until next week. Bye.